you have been called. Before the foundations of the earth, you were chosen by the Father to be adopted through the Son and sealed with the Holy Spirit. So now you can be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We've been called the battle, church. You see, you don't wrestle anymore against flesh and blood, but now it's against rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Called. We've been called to put on the whole armor of God. And so let us fasten on the belt of truth. Let us put on the breastplate of righteousness. On our feet, let us put on the shoes of preparation, the gospel of peace itself. Let us take up the shield of faith and put on the helmet of salvation. And may we bear the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You have been called. We have been called. Let us forever stand firm in this truth. We have been called. Thank you guys. Ah, there we go. Hey, good morning. Can we start over? So glad we had scripture reading time. I don't need to talk anymore, apparently, and, and I was thinking about that as, as we did that. But hey, if you're joining us online or from the Myerstown campus, love you so much and love that we get to join together around God's Word here today. Uh, why don't you take a copy of God's Word right now? Go ahead, grab your copy, whatever it is, and I want you to hold it above your head. Anybody had a sword drill before? You know what that is? We're not going to do that right now, actually, okay? Hold it above your head. Keep holding it. I see some of you put it down. Don't put it down. I see some of you with those fake electronic copies as well. Don't worry. We're not going to judge you today. Hold it high. Hold it high. What do you believe this is? Keep them up. What do you believe you're holding in your hand? What is this? What is this? What is the Bible? And what does it do in your life? And what does it matter? And how important is it to you? You know, we find many times that when we talk about priorities, talk is cheap, and it's actually what we do that determines and actually tells us what we believe. So what do you do with this thing that you're holding above your head? What is it to you? Go ahead, put it down. As we get into God's Word, we have a challenge here today, even at not, not just holding it above our head, but there's a challenge around looking at God's Word and studying it here this morning. As we begin to think about what it is, there's a, a man who lived uh, thousands of years ago who said it this way. When I found your Word, your Word was found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. That's what Jeremiah says in 15, 16. That's what it meant to him. Uh, when, I, when I found your word, your word, I ate them, I devoured them, I was nourished by them, and they brought me joy, and they are a delight to my heart. And I realized my calling I realized I was called by you. That's how 
important this book is to me. Is that what that book is to you? Is that, is that what this is to you? The challenge is, is the fact that when we do some research about the Bible in America, we come up and, and, and we realize that that thing that Jeremiah said isn't necessarily the way most people think about the Bible in America. Lifeway Research did, some, uh, did, a re- did a survey talking about Americans and what it looks like for Americans to interact with the Bible. And, and the results, we have a, a little chart here. Uh, 53% of people in America have little to no interaction with God's Word ever in their life. And then on top of that, we see that about 15% about read about half of it. There, there's about 20% that read the Bible seemingly regularly. Uh, what I also found is this, that 20% of the Bible... Our 20% of people in America will read the Bible from cover to cover. But everybody else really doesn't understand what's in here. And actually, not just reading the Bible at some point in their lifetime, when you look at the frequency of how often people read the Bible, the research, Pounce Research, actually did a study, and they said this, 82% of Christians only read their Bible on Sunday while they're in church. What about you? What about you? Have you read God's Word Anytime this week before last Sunday, when you were last told by the pastor to take your Bible and open it to so-and-so. And what does it say you believe about how you've actually interacted with God's Word in this past week? If, if, we, if we say it's not really what we say, but what we do that determines what we actually believe about it, what is it that you believe? It's interesting to ask that question in a spot that so clearly believes in the Word of God when they were standing up and person after person was reading Scripture from this. So I don't want you to feel berated by me like I'm just setting you up and saying you don't read the Bible enough. Actually, we're not going to actually push really hard on doing things in the Bible because I want this message to be more, so much more than what you already know I'm going to tell you to do. Do you, know, do you know what the pastor tells you to do when the topic is the Bible? Do you know what he tells you to do? What does he tell you to do? Read it, right? And he tries to get you to read it some more, but I don't think that really it's a do problem at all. I think really what those surveys show us and maybe what's going on in your heart when it comes to resistance of reading God's Word is not so much a do thing at all. It's very much a heart thing. It's a a love thing. And so we're going to have to learn to love God's Word. Like Jeremiah said, I ate them, I devoured them, they became a joy to me and the delight of my heart. And I want to show you today from God's Word what it means to have the Word be a delight to our heart. And it starts with this. It starts where all the different parts of the messages of, uh, of our study through the book of Ephesians does. It starts right here in this chair, right? This chair is represented throughout the series uh, of the book of Ephesians, kind of this uh, interaction with God, the need to get to that spot and get centered on Him and who He is and what He's called us to do. The, this whole series has been built around that. And Pastor Jerry introduced to us in this section of the series the idea of uh, sitting, standing, and walking, that you can look at the book of Ephesians and you can see that uh, actually what we're told to do here is to sit in this chair so that we understand the position that God has given us, that we are called by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and, and it, given an inheritance by the Holy Spirit, sealed there. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we were told the purpose for all of that, that God has broken down the barriers between him and between other people so that we would be a church that would make known the glories of God, not just here on earth, but to the heavenly places as well. That's what we've been called to do. 
When we're in our chair and we sit and we see our position and our purpose, then we can stand and we can begin to walk in the practices of what God's Word has told us in chapters 4 and 5 about how we are supposed to live as called individuals. And then finally, in this section, in chapter 6, we're told to come to a spot where we stand in the power of God. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's what we've been called to do. And this morning I want to take a look and help us understand that we are called to the clarity of what God's word brings to us. Paul's been teaching us here in this section, in chapter 6, that we are in a spiritual battle. Turn in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 6. We're in a spiritual battle, and that battle isn't a fake battle. That battle is what? It's real. Say it. The battle is? Have you been in a battle this week? Absolutely. It's real. Not only is the battle real, we know that we've been taught about where the battle is taking place. God's Word tells us it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers and principalities of this dark earth. It's actually what we see here is that the, the, the issue isn't the issues around us. The issue is what's going on where? In our head and our hearts. And so we know that the battle is real. We know that the battle is going on inside of us. It's a spiritual battle that's going on. And we also know the status of this battle. What is the status of the spiritual battle that we are in? We are what? We are victors. There's victory. We're standing in victory. That's why we can stand firm. But there's still, in the victory of the battle that God has won for us, there's still a guerrilla warfare going on. You know, little skirmishes of people who have not submitted to the overwhelming victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, and so that now there's all sorts of flaming arrows that are being shot at us from behind, behind the hills as this guerrilla warfare goes on, and so that's why we need some armor. We were told that we were supposed to tighten up the belt of truth. We were supposed to adjust the breastplate of righteousness and lace up our gospel boots We're supposed to pick up the shield of faith and use it skillfully. And then last week, we were told to take, to take the helmet of salvation, to receive that from the Lord who's giving it to us. Strap on that chin strap and have our helmet ready. And then there's one more thing that we're supposed to take up. We're supposed to take something that's not just defensive, like all the other pieces of armor have been, but something that is both defensive and offensive, We're supposed to take up this piece of armor so that we can stand firm in this very real spiritual battle and the skirmishes that are taking place in this way. Look at verse 17. It tells us what it is. We remember from last week, and take the helmet of salvation, and then here it is, today's message, and the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. We are to take the sword of the Spirit that has been given to us by our Heavenly Father. And so today, I want us to fall in love with what this piece of armor is. I want you to fall more in love today when you walk out of these doors than when you were, came in these doors with what the sword of the Spirit actually is. We are to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, and to do so, he tells us in verse 13 that we have to put on some armor. We have to then fight against the schemes of our enemy so that we can stand firm, stand firm in the Lord. 
So if you're a note-taking type, three things that we're going to look at today, they've been the three things we've looked at every week. You know what's coming if you've been here in Mission Church the last couple weeks. Point number one is to take the armor of God. Take the sword of the Spirit. And what I want to do as we look at the sword of the Spirit is I want to consider the imagery that the author, the Holy Spirit, gave us in this piece of armor, this, this sword that we are to have in our hand. I want to look at the imagery and then give us some definition about what it is. And then think about the nature and the effect uh, that happens when we use this piece of armor properly. And so, first of all, the imagery of what God's Word is telling us that we are to take, we are to take the sword of the Spirit. Now, close your eyes for a minute and think about a sword. When you think about the armor of God, and you know it's supposed to be like Roman legion armor, and just kind of picture that in your mind, and then think about the sword that that armor has on it, like the guy standing there, and what kind of sword are you imagining in your hand? It's interesting. When I think about it, or when I thought about it, I would think about one of those big, long swords that you can swing wildly around and, and go after things with. I mean, I, I want the biggest, baddest sword I could possibly have, Right? And there's actually a word in the Greek for that kind of sword. It's the romphia. It's like a four-foot-long broadsword, but that's not what it means when it says take up the sword of the Spirit. The Greek actually uses a different word than romphia. It's not the big, long, four-foot battle sword. It's something much different. It's the mashira. The mashira is a short, double-edged, dagger-like sword, 6 to 24 inches in length that you could use far more precisely than that big battle sword that you just kind of swing around. We we see here that this is an offensive and a defensive weapon because the, the Roman legion may have a primary weapon. It could be his spear, or it could be a bow and arrow, or it could be a hammer of some sort. But it didn't matter what your primary weapon was. Everybody had a machira. Everybody had a short sword tucked into their belt so that when things got close, when combat got hand-to-hand, close combat was going on, you, you, when you couldn't use your hammer anymore, you had this dagger-like machira that you could use with precision. Now think about what a sword is and what it does. A sword isn't used at your kitchen table. A sword is a weapon. It's a weapon, right? Simple. It's used to destroy something or to defend something. And God's word has likely been something that has been used in your life. This machira of God's word, the sword of the spirit, has likely been used in your life because like in Acts chapter 2 when the word of God was preached by Peter and thousands of people heard it and it says they were cut to the heart, you probably have been cut to the heart. That's why you're here, that's why you're at church, and that's why you're like, I want to hear more of God's word because I I, I need my life opened up to the truth of who God is, and he's revealed himself in this word, and, and I want him to surgically and precisely use his word in my life some more. It also might be because you realize that we need the word of God for a defensive position, Kind of like Jesus when he was first baptized and then he was tested in the desert and he went out into the desert and, and for 40 days and, and, and the enemy came and he tempted him three times. And each time we see that Jesus skillfully used the Mashira of God's word to defend himself from the, from the devil. But not only that, we see that the Word of God is also an offensive weapon. weapon. We've read this this section of verses a couple times in the Scripture reading earlier. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 says, For though we walk 
in the flesh. We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. Is there anything that you need the machira, the sword of the Spirit in your life right now? Is there a lofty opinion that's been raised against God? Is there an argument that somebody is making to you against God? Somebody that you love, that you desperately want to believe in Jesus, but they have these arguments against God. Then you need the sword of the Spirit. Maybe it's even in your own life. Like, I, I, God, I, I love so much, but there's things that I'm still not quite sure about and I'm disagreeing about, and you need the sword of God's Spirit in your life. Or maybe it's just flat-out disobedience. Are you fighting sin without the sword of the Spirit? That's likely not going well. You, you need a divine weapon. You need a supernatural weapon to be used to, uh, to battle against that. And so that's what the Word of God says that we are to take up. This sword of the Spirit, which is explained. Look at verse 17 again. Look at verse 17. We've kind of already alluded to it, but it says, Take up the sword of the Spirit which is, what is it? The, now say it with me. We, you can talk in church. Trust me. I like it when you talk back to me. That, that's a really good thing. So what does the word of God say the sword of the spirit is? It is the, say it like you believe it. It's the, the word of God. The word of God. Now, when we get into the original language, we actually have two different words that were common in Greek that we translate into English as word. The first is probably one that you've heard about before. If you've been around church with any length of time, you've known that the word of God is the logos of God. Have you heard that before? That's the Greek word, logos. It means word. It refers to the total inspired word of God. When we talk about the logos of God, so many times what the verse is saying when it uses the word logos is it's talking about all, everything that's between this cover, everything that's in here. It's talking about the logos of God, the word of God. In Luke chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus is telling a parable about how the seed hits the ground and it represents our hearts and how it's received. And, and he says this, he says, the seed is the word, the logos of God. It, it's all of this. That's what the parable, the seed represents. But we know that it's not just the totality of the pages between the cover here, because we also know that the Logos is actually embodied in Jesus Christ. Because in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word, Logos, was with God, and the Word, Logos, was God, referring to Jesus. And so we know that the Logos, the Word of God, is the totality of Scripture as you have it in your hands today, and it's also embodied by the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. He is the Logos of God. But interestingly, as you read this verse, and it says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, it doesn't say it's the Logos of God. It uses a different word. It uses the word in Greek pronounced rhema, a rhema is literally an utterance or a thing said. 
in the original language. It's a word that signifies the action of speaking or utterance. Like It's kind of like what I'm, it could be described as what I'm doing right now. I'm talking, I'm uttering, I'm rhema to you right now in the original language. And that's the word that's used in verse 17, and that's important. Because we see here that if the word of God is the specific utterance of God, it's not just the totality of Scripture, but the specific words of God in a moment, then there's something we need to maybe wrestle with a little bit. Let me just first say this. Everything that just happened in the open Scripture, Mike, was at one point a rhema in the person that read that Scripture to us. Now, you say, well, wait a second. They were reading from the Bible. Yeah, you're right. They were reading from the Logos, but, but something specific was, was cued in their mind, in their heart by the Holy Spirit. At some point, that verse meant something incredibly significant for them. It was something that the Holy Spirit used as a rhema, a specific utterance for them right there. And it was being used as a rhema for us in the service at that moment. The rhema of God is the inspired word of God applied to a specific circumstance that you need at that moment. And we know from Scripture that every word of God is inspired. We're, we're talking about the inspired words of God. The, the originator of those words is God himself that has put that on the lips of somebody to speak it. We also know that it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates particular Scripture for application in, daily, in our daily walk with the Lord. And so we see here that we cannot depart from what the, the, the context is actually telling us, what the rhema actually is. It's not something that's just some feeling that you have in the moment of, oh, I kind of think that this is what God's telling me. That can get actually pretty dangerous because that could be your thoughts and your desires, and we know our hearts are deceitful and we can't actually know them for ourselves. So to, to say that we are actually speaking the words of God is an incredibly dangerous thing to actually do. Don't take that lightly. And yet what we see here is there are moments where that indeed has, seems to happen. Jesus is a primary example of the rhema happening in his life, if you will. When he was tempted, it records in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, man, he says this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every rhema that comes from the mouth of God. Interesting that he didn't use the word logos. He wasn't talking about the totality of Scripture, but he was talking about Scripture that's used in the moment. That's where life comes from. Listen, your spirit might be feeling a little dead, a little dry, a little, and what you need is you need life breathed into you. You need a rhema from God. We also see, in Jesus say in John chapter 6, verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Again, the words, rhema, that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. I simply want you to notice the difference here. The logos is the complete word of God embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. The rhema is a specific word from the spirit to be applied directly to a situation in our life. Have you ever had that happen? I have. A couple years ago, I was happily serving the Lord halfway across the world at a church in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And then all sorts of, now there was something significant that happened in our world about two years ago. Uh, anybody affected by COVID and all the different things that were there? For me, it began to come, come to a spot where we realized it was changing everything about our lives. 
We started to realize that as we unpacked all that was going on around us that it likely meant that we had to leave uh, our ministry position halfway across the world to something that we didn't have a clue what it would possibly be. It was scary. We were lost. We didn't know what we were supposed to do. Lord, should I, should I persevere and just plow through this, or are you redirecting me and calling me to go somewhere else? It wasn't clear. It was hard to figure out. I wasn't sure what it was, but and then I was reading God's Word totally unrelated to asking that question, just studying God's Word for the purpose of ministry at some point, and I came across a passage in Acts chapter 17 where Paul is in Athens, and he's preaching, and he's telling people about the unknown God and who Jesus actually is, and he says, listen, this unknown God, he actually is the one who created you, and then he said this, he said, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. And listen, the precision of rhema entered into my mind and my heart right there at the moment, and I saw that phrase, God has determined the allotted periods or times and the boundaries of my dwelling place. And I realized, hang on a second, hang on a second, God has orchestrated COVID for all sorts of reasons I can't understand, but in the midst of that, specifically for me right now, I'm seeing the logos of God is telling me that the rhema of God is saying, don't worry about it, Nate. I'm the one that's determining the time and the, peer and the boundaries. If I move you, it's all okay. It doesn't matter that you don't know what's next. I've got you. I've got you. I've determined before time began. I determined your boundary and your time. It was a rhema that dramatically changed my whole attitude and my ability to handle the crisis of what I and my family and my church were feeling right there at that moment. It was the sword of the Spirit in my life. Have you ever had a rhema from the Logos of God? What would it look like? How would your week be different if you had a rhema from the Logos of God today? How would it change what you're facing? How would it reorder your schedule? How could it possibly change your interaction in the relationship? What if you had the sword of the Spirit for that in your life today? We are to take the sword of the Spirit, the rhema of God. But, but what is it really? What, what is the nature of it? We, we see the imagery, we, we get this definition, but, but what's the nature of this sword of the Spirit? What does God's Word say about that? Well, it's simply this. Write this down. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, it's supernatural. Write it down. Put it on a piece of paper. Write down with a big capital Superman S. It's supernatural. That's the nature of what God's Word is. Let me help you understand it a little bit more. First of all, you might be a little bit resistant to something being supernatural because we live in the age of reason and the age of science and the age of technology. And so our bent is simply to be skeptical and cynical about anything that could be outside of science and nature and supernatural. That's the bent of our particular time and age. 
And yet what we find here is that the Word of God is actually the Spirit-filled breath of God on pages in front of you. That's what this is. When you hold this up, go ahead, hold it right now. Hold this high above your head. It's what? It's supernatural. It's supernatural. That's what you're holding above your head. This is the Word of God that is supernatural. We know this for a, in a couple different ways. We see how we got it. The origins of what God's Word is is defined in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says this, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not natural. It's not natural. It's not coming from man. It's not originated in a person. You say, well, then how do we get it on a piece of paper? How do we get it in the pages in front of us? Keep reading. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we got God's word, and it's supernatural how we got it. It's, it's not normal. It's not natural. It's different than any other book that we have because while men, yes, used pen and paper to write these things, they were carried by the Holy Spirit to write God's Word to you. That's awesome. Think about it this way. The contents from cover to cover of this book were written over the period of 1,500 years. 1,500 years by 40 different authors of all different socioeconomic classes and statuses and all from all different nationalities. And over the course of 1,500 years, by 40 different authors, they all somehow were able to write a coherent understanding of the character and nature of God and how he wants us to live today. I mean... If Jerry and I were to sit down and write something, we couldn't do that in the, in the course of a day. And yet 40 people over 1,500 years, that's what they did. They were able to write something that is in a full agreement with itself, no contradictions, no ability to see any error in the process because the Spirit of God was carrying men along to do that. So what we end up having in our hands is something that's supernatural. It's 66 books, sub-books if you will, it, it's 1,189 chapters. It's 31,173 verses. It's 773,692 words. That's what you have in your hands. And it's supernatural. But let's not just take the words of Peter for this. Let's ask Jesus, what does he think about God's word? You're a believer of Jesus. Jesus is the most important individual in your life. It would be important that the most important individual in your life comment on this and tell you what he thinks about this, and he's done so in his word. We see in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, his understanding of Scripture. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Listen, the validity of Scripture is found when Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill all of them. If it was false, if it was just a man-made thing, if it was just natural and not from God, he wouldn't say that. He said that at the beginning of his ministry. Then what did he say at the end of his ministry? After his resurrection, he's walking on the road to Emmaus. Two men are talking. Suddenly a stranger appears. It's Jesus. Okay, QEN right there. 
And Jesus, they have all sorts of questions. They re, he responds to their questions by saying this, Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's awesome. That's awesome. So that's what Jesus thinks. And then we got to ask, is it trustworthy? Anybody ever wonder, is God's word trustworthy? There's all sorts of different answers that we can find for that, and we don't have the time today to do all of them. I'm simply going to focus on one. Simply this. There are 55 prophecies about Jesus as the Messiah, at least 55. I'm just going to go with the low number here. 55 prophecies about Jesus as the Messiah, and every one of them come true. Every one of them. Now think about that. What, what just happened there? Somebody, some little shepherd, started to write some things down, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Hundreds of years before, they prophesied that there was going to be this man that comes to earth, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem, for example. And he got it right. And it wasn't a fluke. It wasn't chance. 55 times over and over, we see precise things said about him, and they all come true in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen, what you're holding in your hand is completely trustworthy. The point of this is that this, is this isn't something that's just natural. It's beyond natural. It's supernatural. 2 Timothy 3 says, it is God-breathed. He onto these pages. Just like, recall back to our series in Genesis last fall, when he took the dust and he formed it, and then he, and you came alive. Okay, somebody put, all of you, put your hand over your heart right now. Do you feel anything? Okay, somebody take a breath. Take another one. Go ahead. Let me hear you. Okay. Some things that signify that you are alive. And different than any other book ever written in history, the Word of God is alive. It's alive. It's just like God breathed. He into it. It has the breath of life that you have in your lungs and that your heart is pumping through your body right now. It is alive. One philosopher said, listen, you put the Bible on one side of a table and then put a long distance between and then stack every other book of history and they're completely different because the Word of God is living. It's God-breathed. Not just living, it's active. In Hebrews chapter 4, Chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's supernatural. I mean, have you ever been in a conversation with your spouse and you go, I know exactly what she's thinking, and this is what we're going to do because of it, and then you get smacked because that's not what she was thinking. And yet the word of God, it divides the joints and the marrow, the soul and the spirit, the word of God. Listen, you don't just study God's word. The word of God studies you. And in doing so, it, it, it cuts you open and it breathes life right where you need it. 
Would that not create some joy in your life? If you had God speaking directly right where you needed it, right where it felt dead, right where it felt hopeless, right where it felt silent, you suddenly had the breath of God supernaturally inside of your soul and your heart directing you and what to do, would that not be a delight to you? Notice, we've already even begun to change. It's not just the nature of supernatural, but it's effective. Write that down. It's effective. There's an effect that happens. It changes us. God's Word, when it cuts us open, divides into our soul right to the very innards of where we need things, is then breathed into us, and it has an effect. In Isaiah chapter 55, it says that the Word of the Lord will not return. Say it. Why is it that you know what God's Word doesn't do, and you know that part of what God's Word doesn't do? It doesn't return void, but let me ask you a question. Do you know what it does? Do you know what it does? We understand God's Word doesn't return void. Actually, all of verse 11, 10 and 11 in Isaiah 55 tell us that God's Word is effective, that it does what it says it's going to do. But what does it say it's going to do? Well, you just read the next verse. In verse 12 it says, for, for you shall go out and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and, the, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Give me one word describing what that verse is saying happens when you read God's word. It doesn't return void, but it, instead it causes you to worship. Not only worship, but you read the next verse, and it tells you something else it does. In verse 13, it says, Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. One word describing what that verse is telling us the Word of God does. It is taking the briar to a cypress, taking the thorn to a myrtle, it is transforming us. Listen, God's word doesn't just return void. It has a purpose and it will accomplish its purpose. And when you open God's word, it pierces your heart and it causes you to praise his name and to worship him and it causes you to be different and transformed in all the ways that you want to be different and transformed that you can't do on your own. That's what God's Word does. It supernaturally is rhema'd into my life, cutting me open so that I worship God and, I tra- and I'm transformed to live the way He calls me to live. Is that not a joy and a delight? Could, could you use some of that in your life? Would that not be helpful in what you're facing? Absolutely. Certainly was for a man named Darsh who was a poor shepherd in the central hills of India. Darsh, as he was taking care of his herd, saw something over in the distance laying on the ground. As he walked up to it, it was, a, it was a piece of leather. As he got to the leather, he realized it was a book cover. Somebody had ripped the contents out of it, and he saw this piece of leather, and he got, that, that's somewhat valuable. He picked it up, and he took it home. He set it by the door of his house, Talked to his wife a little bit about it. We've, we've got to find out what this is. It seems to be somewhat valuable. And so uh, they, they made a plan to go to the market and find it. But over the course of a couple of days before they got to the market, they noticed something dramatically different about their house. His wife came to him about three days later and said, you know, ever since you've brought that leather cover into our house, there's been more peace 
that we've experienced together and individually, something's happening because of that. And so they went to markets and they went to the bookstalls and they began to ask all the different book vendors, do you know what this is? And nobody knew what it was. Nobody had a clue. Nobody had ever seen anything like it before. They were just kind of up against it when suddenly he turned and he looked and he saw a stranger and the stranger was holding a book with the exact same cover. Timid but excited, he ran over and, sir, sir, what is this thing that you're holding in your hand? And the stranger says to him, have you never seen a Bible before in your life? He said, no. What is it? The stranger reaches into his bag and pulls out a brand new Bible and hands it to Darsh and says, here, you can have one. Why don't you read it for yourself? I'll come by in a couple days and help you. A couple days turn into a couple weeks. About three weeks later, Darsh and his wife become believers in Jesus Christ out of their Hindu faith. And they set up the very first prayer house in their village. As they read it and they study it, the worship of God is happening. It's transformed them, but not just them. It transforms others. By the time Western missionaries showed up, Darsh had set up over 20 prayer houses in the villages surrounding his town. People who were of the Hindu faith lost were coming to Christ because the supernatural work of the logos of God turned into the rhema of God and cut them to the heart, brought them to their knees, transformed their life. They became worshipers of him, had to tell other people around it. It transformed the whole area of their life because they got the word of God active in their life. Man, I love God's word. man, I need God's Word. It's so easy for my heart to worship something else. And it's so hard to be able to change the circumstances and the people around me and to change even myself. It's depressing to try to do that on my own. Oh, what it is to have the Word of God transforming me and causing me to be a worshiper of Him. Would you want that too? Do you need more of that? I think we do. And yet part of the reason it's hard to get more of that is because we have an enemy who is doing everything he can to keep it from us. To distance us. To cause us to see the sword of the Spirit, but never pick it up for ourselves. That battle's real. Is that battle real? Is that battle going on in your life? We have to withstand an enemy. That's the second point if you're taking notes. Withstand the attack. Withstand the attack of the enemy that's trying to disarm us. He's trying to make sure you don't have the sword of the Spirit and all that it can do in your life. He's trying to make sure that you can, do, that you can think you can live life without it in any way. And so he's doing everything he can. I think one of the primary ways 
in our age of information is to overload us with lots of facts, but not actually the truth of God's Word. I had a friend who responded to the rescue need in 2005 after Hurricane Katrina, one of the largest storms that has ever hit our coastline. You know, as it ran up New Orleans, it killed thousands of people. It displaced hundreds of thousands of people. It caused millions and millions in damage. The levees broke. The flood came. People needed help, and so he responded, and he went down, and, and he was in a boat because everything around him was in, was in water helping people out of it. And he said, you know what, Nate, one of the most striking things that I remember from that rescue effort was we were surrounded by water, but none of it was drinkable. And so many of us were so dehydrated because we couldn't get the fresh water that our bodies needed, even though we were surrounded by the salt water of the flooding. Listen, the devil is trying to bring a hurricane of information to you that you cannot actually drink because you need the pure water of God's Word. And he's constantly bombarding us in a way to cause us to think that we have all the knowledge, we have everything we need, I don't need to actually open God's Word. He's trying to disarm us. So let's talk a little bit about the spiritual realities revealed by some flesh and blood struggles that are common to every single one of us. As I go through these things, I don't want you to think that I'm just trying to pick on you. I'm trying to deal with what is flesh and blood reality and show you the spiritual things that are going on behind it. I brought a little chart. We're going to look at the devil's scheme and then his goal and his tactic in three different ways. Scheme number one is this, distraction. The devil's trying to distract us because he is able to disarm us when the Word of God is unavailable. That's his goal. He's trying to make the Word of God unavailable. How does he do that? If the battle is in my mind and in my heart, how does he make God's Word unavailable? Well, first of all, I don't read it. He's trying to do everything he can to get you to not read God's Word. Pastor, I... I believe God's Word is true and it's, and it's from God, but I don't read it very often. Why? Why? Well, I'm too busy. That's a flesh and blood issue. There's a lot of us that are really busy, but I'm too busy to get into the life-giving Word of God is what we're saying when we say we're too busy. Or I'm too tired. I set my alarm early and I just can't get out of bed. Or I read it as I go to bed and I just fall asleep and I get like half a verse and my eyes are closed and I'm too tired and I haven't shaped the priorities of my life to make sure the Word of God that gives life is in it. Or maybe it's simply I just don't understand it and so I've given up on it. Really? God will open your heart and speak directly to you as you need it and you're saying, you know what, I'm not willing to do the hard work to understand what's going on there. He disarms us when it's unavailable because we don't read it. And secondly, when we don't hear it, how do we not hear it? Well, common reasons of not hearing it look like this. I'm in my car. I have a chance as I drive to work to be, to, to be listening to something, and I choose to listen to the radio. Because you know what? Harry Styles' new song just dropped, and i got to talk to all my friends when I get to the water cooler about it. And so I value his words more than I value the very words breathed onto the pages of Scripture. Or maybe it's, man, our family's just so busy. Our kids are in sports. We can't get to church. That's when it all happens. Little Johnny's going to be a superstar. He's going to get that scholarship. 
And those are more important than actually being at a place where God's Word is taught and spoken and given. Or maybe simply, I've got to get out of here. Like, I get it. There's things to do. Like, I, I, I'll be here for a minute, but, but it, it, I'm so busy. I've got to get to the next thing. Even when I'm here, I'm thinking about other things. It, listen, the devil is trying to disarm you in all of those moments when he tries to get you to not hear the spoken word of God or not read the pages of Scripture. His second scheme, not just distracting us, it's to divide us. And he divides us and disarm, divide us from God's word. We're disarmed when God's word is unapplied. It looks in two common ways, at least like this. The Word of God is unapplied. I, I, man, I believe God's Word. Yeah, I got a Bible. I'm one of those Christian people. It's, it's in my house. It's on my phone. I got one of those apps. I haven't opened it in a while. Because I merely admire it. I admire God's Word. It, wow, God's Word. Yeah, it's awesome. When it's over there and not in here. Wow, God's word, yeah, I, I, I agree intellectually it's a good thing. And we admire it from a distance. What's wrong with admiring it from a distance? Well, it's kind of like that frustrating thing when you go to the museum and there's that incredible artifact and they put glass between you and it so you can't touch it. It actually says you are not allowed to touch it, right? And the Bible is just a museum piece to you in your life. You know it's valuable, but it's not useful. That's admiring it. That divides us from God's Word. That causes it to be unapplied. Secondly, it's when I'm apathetic about it. Wow, you have a Bible. Meh. Meh. That's great for you. It doesn't really matter much to me. I don't really value it. And you, you know what? You're actually kind of crazy. You're kind of fanatical. You talk about getting after it. Only freaks do that. We're just kind of apathetic. Yeah, it says some things. I never really opened my life to let it do anything. Listen, we're disarmed when the Word of God is unapplied because we're apathetic about it. And then thirdly, the devil is trying to distort his scheme is to distort. His goal in distorting is causing us to, un, to, to not believe it. We are disarmed when the Word of God is unbelieved. All right, are you grammar people out there? Unbelieved is not a word. I get it, okay? But I'm preaching, and I'm not as good as Jerry at the whole letter thing, and so unbelieved. Disbelieved, I know. Disbelieved is the right word. Unbelieved. Listen, the Word of God, we're disarmed from it when the Word is unbelieved in two ways. Number one, I question it. Now, it's not wrong to ask questions of the Bible. It's not wrong to get in the, and say, what does this mean? And how does it go with this over here? And that's not what I'm talking about when I say questioning it. When I say question it, I mean like when the devil comes and his nut, first thing that he does, the, the number one priority and tactic is when he came to Eve and he said, did God actually say? And listen, he's been repeating that phrase over and over and over and over and over. He's in your life constantly questioning the word of God, saying, did God actually say? Did he really say? Is that really what you think he wants you to do? Is there, is there not a better way? You know what? You can come up with a better way. Listen, he's trying to distort the word of God so you don't believe it and that you believe that your way is better. And then secondly, when we twist it, 
when we twist God's word. Do you remember when Jesus, we referred to this earlier, was in the desert being tempted by Satan and he used God's word to defend himself? Do you know who else used God's word in that moment? Who else used it? Satan did. In the second temptation, Satan, Satan used God's word. He quoted from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He quotes in, Ma- in, Ma- in Matthew's account, he says this, Is it not written that he will command his angels concerning you? And, verse 12, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone? So if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Don't forget that our enemy is skilled in using God's word for his purposes because he twists it. He tries to use your sword against you. It's very common today. We see that happen in all sorts of different ways. Here's just one of them. God accepts everybody. Now, that's a wonderful message, if it were true. That really plays to our heart. But there's something that's being divided there very carefully that's being twisted in all of that. Because it's true. It's true that that God wishes that none should perish. That's God's word. It's true. It's true that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's true, that's true, that's God's word. But it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible, I'll accept you the way you are no matter what, it doesn't matter, you don't have to do anything. Just kind of lay back and relax. I accept you the way you are. No, 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 no. He says that he wants to bring you to a place of repentance where you change your mind and you realize I'm not acceptable in and of my own. I'm not acceptable for who I am and what I do. I'm actually a sinner against God, and He has a pure and perfect way, and if I don't get my life lined up with that, I'm not actually accepted by God. And so the devil twists his word to try to accomplish his purposes. We're disarmed when the Word of God is not believed by questioning it and twisting it. This is common flesh and blood struggle. I didn't pick these out because I thought that this was exactly what was needed. I don't know what your heart needed, but it's quite possible that you have fallen into a flesh and blood struggle where you're not reading God's Word, you're not hearing God's Word, The Word of God is just a museum to you. You're apathetic about it. Maybe you've questioned it and and in an unbelieving way, not because you're trying to figure it out, but in a like hard-hearted way. Maybe you're here today and you're like, "I, I like the twisted version better. And as the Holy Spirit reveals to us today that these are the things that the devil is doing to try to disarm you from the sword of the Spirit, is there anywhere where you need to take a moment and confess to the Lord what that pastor said, that, that, that's actually me. Lord, I confess to you I'm pretty apathetic about what your word says. Or any of those things that just happened. Or something else the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind in you right now. Do you need to fall on the grace of God again and tell him, I'm wrong? 
your word is right. And I see how I've been tricked by the devil to, to, to be disarmed from using your word the way it is. You know, when the pastor said at the beginning that the word is a joy and the delight of our heart, I, I think it's a duty and a thing I have to do, and I check the box, and listen, I have God's word, and I read God's word, but it doesn't actually make a difference in my life, and God, I want to repent of that lifeless interaction with your living word. And Lord, would you create in me a belief about what this word is and what it does? Would you change me so that I can live according to it? Listen, you can do that because the blood of Jesus Christ has paid the price of your sin. If your hard heart is sinfully rejecting God's word, you can be forgiven of that. If your apathetic heart just doesn't care, you can be forgiven of that. If your questioning heart is trying to just get away with doing it your way, you can be forgiven of that. By simply admitting you're wrong, believing that God is right, and that you've been forgiven, and then you can start walking in a completely new way today, right now, right now. You can just ask, God, would you bring joy and delight to my heart because of your word? If you need to do that, do that right now. As we do all the stand firm, that's the third thing. We're told to do all the stand firm, take up the armor, withstand the devil, then do all the stand firm. We'll be quick here. We need to take the sword of the Spirit. We need to receive it. Notice in, in Ephesians chapter 6, the, the word, the controlling word here is take in verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. Pastor Jerry did such a good job last week of realizing we don't go get the helmet, but somebody gives us the helmet. God gives us the helmet of salvation. Same thing is applied here to God's word. You don't go get God's word. You take what's being given to you by God. You take it and you receive it. And it brings worship and transformation. What would you do if in your little town, in your little neighborhood, suddenly terrorists set up a training camp right down the road? How would you respond to that? Would, would there be fear in your heart that would turn to hatred? Would, would you decide, you know what, I'm pulling out of here, I'm not living here anymore, I'm buying another house on the other side of town? What would you do? The, the Word of God actually has practically influenced that very situation in a little village in North Africa where Al-Qaeda set up a terrorist camp right down the road outside of the village. And a church wondered, what should we do? And after prayerful consideration, they said, our response is that we're going to put a training center, a house to train people in the Word of God right down the road. They set up that little house where they started teaching God's Word, and some of the boys from the neighborhood began to come. And as they came, they heard God's Word, they studied God's Word, it brought them to worship and transformation. And you know what happened? They were, suddenly they were like, wait a second. Some of our friends need to hear this. Actually, they're the friends who've been recruited and captured and kidnapped, and they're in the terrorist training camp. And so because of God's word in their life and, and, and seeing that they, they knew their friends were, needed this, they, they asked the leaders, could we go into the terrorist training camp, into Al-Qaeda's camp here, and go tell God's word to our friends? We, these are the boys we grew up with. We know their names. We know their families. Would you let us go do that? It was a dangerous thing, and so they got permission. The leader said, we'll do that. 
So a number of boys came to the gate and asked the guards, can we come in? Al-Qaeda guards there, seeing them as potential fresh recruits, absolutely, come on in, come on in. But what they didn't realize was that those boys were concealed carrying a weapon. They brought, tucked into their shirt, the Word of God. And they opened the Word of God with their friends in their camp, and these boys that were in there that were being indoctrinated with violence and hatred and animosity specifically against Christians were reading the Christian book, and as they read it, they were like, wait a second, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, we want that. Wait a second, the Beatitudes and all Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that's how we want to live. We're so tired of being told all the things about evil in this camp, and they put their trust in Jesus Christ. Suddenly, there was a problem. Those boys were being trained by people who hate this book, and they were trying to destroy this book, and they themselves would be destroyed. And so the friends from outside of the camp arranged with the friends who became Christians inside of the camp, and under the cover of darkness, they slipped out one night and escaped and ran away. What do you think they did? <laughs> they set up another little training, training center away from that village where all those little boys, all those boys began to come and study God's Word together. And as they studied God's Word, they were so impacted by it that they became, listen, listen, sent on the mission of God and started infiltrating the whole area around them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? Because they had God's Word. It changed them. One of the leaders said this, it was amazing to watch they went with the same boldness, determination, and tenacity they had learned in the Al-Qaeda training, but now armed only with the love and grace-filled message of Jesus Christ, they shared the gospel with those around them. Listen, God's word is effective, and it's spreading all around the world, and God wants you to take it so that you become one just like that. How do you take it? Four things. It's super simple. This is the part you already knew before I even started preaching. You know exactly what the pastor is going to say now, right? How do you take God's Word? Number one, you read it. You daily get into God's Word and let it feed your soul. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is God-breathed. Breathed out by God, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be able to be complete, equipped for every good work. Listen, I need God's word because it teaches me it, and it reproves me and corrects me and it trains me in righteousness. I need God's word to tell me what's right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. That's what that verse is telling us it does. Secondly, we need to meditate on it. We need to meditate on it. Meditate means to mull over in our mind, to grapple with it in our heads, to think and consider it repeatedly so that we understand it deeply. Blessed is the man, Psalm 1 says, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What happens when you meditate on it? He becomes like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Man, I want that. Memorize it. Read it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. One of the best ways to meditate on God's word is to memorize it. Listen, I envy those of you who can quote all sorts of those movie quotes and music quotes and you know the name of the song and you play... What's the wordle game that's the music thing? I can't do that because I don't remember anything. But listen, memorizing God's word is precious 
Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And while you may not have natural ability to, to memorize things, can I just tell you something? If you read the verse seven times a day for a week, you'll have it memorized. Or find the thing that works for you. But that's how you memorize God's word. And then finally, we need to study it. We need to study God's word. Why? Why do we need to study God's word? Psalm 19, 7 to 11 says, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The testimony of the Lord is sure, enlightening the eyes the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are right, are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Great reward. Folks, we need the word of God lavished in our life. We need to consume God's word. I found your words and I ate them and they became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. Listen, how does that happen? We read it, we memorize it, we meditate on it, we study it, and as you consume God's word, it becomes the joy, it becomes the delight, it becomes the thing you can't do without. And when you see the true nature of what it is and what it does, it becomes the thing that we desperately desire each and every day. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Take up the sword of the Spirit. How will you take up the sword of the Spirit this week? I mean, can you decide that right now? Right here, right now, can you decide what is it that you're going to do to take the sword of the Spirit? Maybe ask for a little bit of help. Community is always good in that. So that we can get to next week, and it won't be only 18% of us that have looked at God's Word before the next time a pastor says, open God's Word. So that we can be a group of people who fall in love with God's Word, obedient to it, changed by it, worshiper of God because of it, sent on our mission to help others have that very same thing. How will you take up God's Word? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, so much for your word. It is precious to us. Lord, we have found your word. We've devoured it. We've eaten of it today, even as we have heard the preaching of God's word. Lord, we've come to recognize that it is a sword. It is the, the logos and the rima that we desperately need to transform us and cause us to worship you. Thank you for the supernatural work that does that. Lord, help us to withstand the attacks of the enemy that would seek to try to keep it from us so that we would be equipped for every good work that you've called us to. For everything that we have to face this week, for all the fears, for all the things that need to change, Lord, we desperately need a word from you. Lord, would you give us your word? Would you make us people of your word? Would you draw us to love your word more and more? It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.